You're listening to the Contemplative Light Podcast with your host, Clint Sabom. Chris, welcome back to the Contemplative Light Podcast. It's so great to be here, Clint. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, so we were just talking briefly, but you're in Chiang Mai right now, and um, what what all have you been up to? <laughs> well, uh, I I am in Chiang Mai. You're right. I, I moved back here uh, from Chiang Rai. I was up in Chiang Rai for five months uh, working at a retreat center. And for the list, the listeners who aren't familiar with Thailand, Chiang Rai is in the very northern corner of Thailand, on the border of Myanmar. Uh, so I was up in the mountains up there, uh, but they've closed due to the COVID crisis. So I'm back in Chiang Mai. I guess I got here. Uh, it's been a few months now. I got here in September. Uh, so I've been doing some teaching. Uh, first, at a, there's a local uh, center here called Chiang Mai Holistic Center. And I did a, a full program, a six-week program on loving kindness there. Uh, so I've been, uh, you know, trying to, to get into the uh, community here in Chiang Mai. But uh, with COVID, it's nearly impossible. Uh, so everything's really done online right now. So, so as far the as six doing, week you go ahead. did uh, the the six weeks you did at the holistic center was that online or is that in person? No, that was in person. It was uh, oh things, cool. Yeah, things. I know it's it's a it's a rare gem when you can find the opportunity to do things in person nowadays. Uh, but but things were pretty weren't there wasn't any COVID in, in Chiang Mai at that time. Uh, so things were pretty, pretty open. Um, uh, and a few months after, it was really actually right after that, I went on vacation. And then a month or a couple of weeks after that, COVID uh, came to Chiang Mai and shut everything down. Uh, and uh, it's now it's starting to open up again. Uh, so which is which is good. <laughs> gotcha. So Are have, there active yeah. cases in Thailand right now? There are, but only uh, near near and around Bangkok, so it's pretty contained. Okay. Uh, but there is some community spread. I think it's down less than a hundred cases a day now. Uh, so they've done really well. I have to say, over this whole over the whole COVID crisis, uh, Thailand has been one of the shining stars on the map. Really, I'm happy to to be here. Uh, not only for that reason, for many reasons, but but um, it's i felt very safe uh being here yeah. yeah yeah they handled it really well compared to us i mean we're having i mean we're, we're we're bragging about how covid is down in the states but it's still just an insane amount of case new cases a day still <laughs> yeah um, I, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so, I've, I've had to, to stop watching. I've, I've had to stop checking the news, uh, just um, you know, and keep sending, you know, keep sending prayers to to you, to my family, to my friends over in in the states. You know, uh, I know it's a really, really um, difficult situation all around uh, over there. Yeah, very much, yeah. very much. Mm. It continues, never ending. Mm. Uh, well, hopefully, yeah. there's light, light they're coming uh you know hopefully with um with the, enough you know vaccines and things like that hopefully we'll be able to mitigate the, the spread enough so that things can return to normal so. yeah yeah i hope so too so you've been studying you mentioned i have i'm a student again after you know so many so many years really uh, of just teaching um you know I, I think there comes a point in people's journey uh when they practice and study you know it's almost like a, a gestalt switch where you see things in one way and you look again and you see things in another way uh it kind of had that feeling when i was you know in in my journey of studies i realized okay it's time to teach now and that switch was flipped. And so I really entered into that wholeheartedly in 2009. Uh, but 
because of the COVID crisis, really, uh, the because of the retreat center closing down, and I, I just had an abundance of time, uh, more more free time on my hands than I've had in a long time. Uh, and so I started, uh, well, really meditating a lot, many, many, many hours a day. Most of the day was spent in meditation. Um, but then I started to, uh, you know, come across adverts on online uh, for different programs. Uh, and all of a sudden I was, wow, that looks good. And so I signed up for that. And I, w I think I was lucky. The first program I signed up for was really a great program. Uh, it was um, trauma-sensitive mindfulness, uh, and it was a, a college-level course taught by a great professor, uh, David Trelevin, um, who wrote a book on trauma-sensitive mindfulness, and it was really, it really went really well. Uh, and so I was hooked. <laughs> uh, I learned a lot, and I, and I got really into it. And so now I'm signed up for probably more than I can handle. <laughs> Uh, but I just finished um, an MBSR program. I've never done one of those. They're kind of famous uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, program. And, yeah, John you know, Kabat-Zinn. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it was at actually at his home uh, university there at UMass Amherst, uh, where where the the online program was being broadcast from. Uh, so that was also a good program, uh, went very well. It was kind of, it was interesting because I've done all of those mindfulness-based stress reduction practices for many, many, many years, uh, for 30 years or so. And, uh, but I just didn't have the language. I didn't know that, that that's what it was, you know? So when I registered for the course, I was really curious. And then after each session, I was like, oh yeah. I, they put it in a very Western language, uh, and uh, and have and have had tremendous success with that, uh, which is really good. Uh, but um, in a way, it was all familiar territory for me. Uh, but that was kind of good because it gave me a breather. I'm, I'm also registered now uh, for two retreats and waiting to hear back on the third. Uh, one is an early Buddhism study retreat, and one is an, a late Buddhism study retreat. So I'm getting both both ends of the history of Buddhism, uh, which has really been fun for me. And then the the third retreat is a more traditional meditation retreat, an online meditation retreat, where we'll be spending hours and hours meditating and um, and uh, going back to the teacher with our results and things like that. So. Uh, but it's amazing what's what's out there now online. It's uh, um, so I'm taking uh, full advantage of that as much as I possibly can. Uh, yeah. So I was going to say, uh, uh, being a student again <laughs> is really um, uh, it's just different, you know. It, it, and I really I'm really enjoying it. I feel young, you know, like. <laughs> Uh, back in the early days when I was, you know, in the mode of discovery, which, you know, healthy, a healthy practice, you never really get out of the mode of discovery. But I guess when you're practicing with just a teacher, uh, not to minimize the importance of a teacher, but when you're practicing with a teacher, um, I don't know, it, it doesn't, it seems that, well, discovery is mostly self-discovery at that point. It's not being given to you by uh, other teachers and and guided you know, so much by by a faculty. Uh, so there's there's a, quite a bit of uh, uh, experiential difference between uh, being a full time teacher and being a full time student in that way. Yes, yes, but you're continuing teaching too. Yeah, absolutely, and all of this has given me such a, a broader base to teach from. Uh, in many, many different ways. Um, uh, firstly, it's, it's allowed me to see how other teachers use the online platforms uh, and, and I've taken a lot, of, uh, a lot away from that and, and really enriched my own offerings, my own online offerings uh, with that. You know, I've been uh, running online programs since 2016. So uh, I was early in the game, ahead of the game when COVID landed. Uh, and happy that I had some experience with it. Um, but not only the technical side, I mean, 
being a student myself allows me uh, kind of more insight into the questions that students ask. Because, you know, it might be, they, they might be voicing a question in a similar way to I would voice a question to my teacher or in the, in the framework of, of a program that I'm attending. And so it, it allows me a little bit of a kind of a, a glimpse into a deeper glimpse, I guess, into questions that I get asked as a facilitator, as a teacher, which has been nice. Wow. And then also, yeah, yeah, it's been it's been great for that. And having all of the, um, I guess, you know, yeah, being in the, in, in the schoolwork frame. I guess when I when I, I find that I'm I'm already kind of on when I when I connect with a student one on one or when I when I open an online retreat, I feel like I'm the momentum is already there. Like there's no warm up uh, because I've been studying all day or I've been meditating all day or whatever it is that I've been engaging with my classwork. Um, those juices are are really flowing. So then when I when I offer a one on one session to my students or retreat uh, a program, uh, the juices are already kind of moving and flowing, which has been really quite nice. So do you do your one-on-one -on -one sessions with Zoom? I usually let the client or students uh, uh, select the platform that they like. Uh, I do prefer Zoom now. I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great platform. Um, you can record the sessions really easily. You can screen share. Uh, so if I have slides that I'm working with or information that I've printed up, I can actually show them the information printed up on the screen. Uh, so there's a lot of really great benefits to using Zoom and the connection is almost always really good and strong. Um, so I like Zoom. I still use Skype though. A couple of my uh, clients are, are on Skype and Facebook Messenger also. Uh, works sure. really well yeah so so um i really just I'm, I'm kind of open to to try any platform but if i'm asked i i usually select zoom sure and then and then you're with your online virtual retreat offerings you use zoom for those mainly i do yeah uh yeah like i was saying it's a great platform uh, it's easy to pass uh, written information over the screen with, um, and you can see all of the participants if you choose to, uh, and, and I do. I, I like to see everyone's faces, uh, and if, as long as they're comfortable being on camera during the retreat, uh, then, and I found that, that even that eye contact and seeing people's faces and their expressions when they're sharing what they're learning from the retreat, it creates a really wonderful, warm sense of community online. Uh, it's something that I I've been uh, consistently surprised about. I, I just finished uh, my second online retreat offering. And uh, I've really uh, come away with a newfound appreciation for the ability to cultivate a community online. It's, uh, it's really, it's really, um, uh, it's, it's, surpassed my expectations uh, and so zoom is perfect for that because you can you, it divides the screen up into squares so you can see everyone's face and and share stories and and uh, have that eye-to-eye -eye contact uh, which is so important yeah. your your second online offering did you do that through us or was that the first one you did i, I did the first one through contemplative light and and uh, I've done the second one. I've gone out on my own after that. Uh, no offense, uh, uh, but because it, it was really a numbers game uh, uh, with the amount of people that uh, the online retreats that I'm offering are bringing in, it just didn't, didn't make sense uh, to have uh, multiple, uh, multiple people offering the retreat. The numbers weren't adding up. Uh, so, I, so I went out on my own. Definitely. Yeah, well, no, that's good. I mean, whatever works. Um, and you were saying that a lot of your teaching is uh, looking at the four immeasurable minds. Right. Yeah. The four immeasurable minds. It comes from the Buddhist tradition. 
they're also known as uh, the Brahma Viharas. That's a Sanskrit word, uh, which means it literally, literally translates to the dwelling of the gods, or the home of the gods. Uh, so um, they're considered to be quite important in the Buddhist tradition. And those are loving kindness, uh, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And so over the year, I'm going to offer one retreat on each of the four immeasurable minds. Uh, and so there are eight-week programs. And I just, just wrapped up a loving kindness offering over eight weeks. And I am launching the next one on uh, March 21st. And if for people in the Americas, here in Asia, Australia, New Zealand, it's actually March 22nd. Uh, but East Coast time, it's uh, 9 p.m. on East Coast time on March 21st. And the way I run the programs is quite flexible. Uh, we meet twice a week for two hours, of course, with a break in the middle there. Uh, and in those two hours, I'll offer a guided meditation, sometimes two guided meditations. Uh, and I'll do quite a bit of talking, presenting uh, different techniques of, well, in the last retreat, it was loving kindness. The upcoming retreat is on compassion. And so we, we take a deep dive into the techniques of self-compassion. We actually spend four weeks on self-compassion on this upcoming retreat because self-compassion is really so healing and there's so much trauma uh, from the past year of this COVID crisis and the political divisions and the economic strife. Uh, so I outlined the retreat to contain four weeks of self-compassion to really uh, help with all of that. And then after those four weeks, we do four weeks where we practice uh, giving compassion to other people. And so this follows right in the Buddhist tradition where we cultivate compassion for the self and then we extend compassion to people we love. We then extend compassion to people we don't know and then to people we don't like and then to the entire world like that. And so at the end of the eight weeks, ideally um, the participants have cultivated the uh, practices and the techniques to allow them to continue expanding compassion uh, through the entire world. So widening the circle of care and compassion, ideally. So that's the, the focus of the goal. It's uh, They're wonderful retreats that are available for beginners, uh, advanced meditators, any skill level. Uh, um, and I, I love it when beginners sign up because uh, it's really uh, fertile ground, uh, but advanced meditators are welcome as, as well. Yeah. So why don't we go through some of that material and, you know, you can share what you want to share as far as um, cultivating compassion. Sure. Great. So the idea behind the immeasurable minds is that they are uh, inherent in all beings, that all of our minds, in fact, the universal mind, is it contains these four qualities, loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, and joy. And so those qualities are always with us. They're always in our being, but they get covered up by our habitual reactions, the habitual ways that we react to unfavorable circumstances or sometimes favorable circumstances. And so the practice is really designed to allow us to pull back that curtain and allow the, uh, here in this case, compassion to really shine as a quality of our natural being. And so, one of the techniques I'll be using to allow people to discover that their inherent compassion is to ask them to recall uh, a challenging experience in their life. And usually I like to start with something quite mild. 
you know, some, not something really heavy or really dark or really, you know, traumatic, but, you know, something a little bit, you know, painful. Uh, I recently had surgery, as you know, so, so sometimes when I do this practice, I bring up that, you know, the experience of having surgery to work with this, because that's clearly a painful experience, a challenging experience, but not traumatic. And then, so going into that, in the silence of meditation, we bring up this challenging experience. And then very, very clearly underlying that challenging experience is the desire to be free from that experience, right? And so we start to experience that that as well. So we, we Wait, what do you mean being free, like being free from the memory of it or the burden being, of it? Yeah, both could be either being, you know, the push against anything difficult, anything challenging, anything painful. We all have this natural tendency to push against that experience. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, that push, yeah, the resistance to the difficulty, that's compassion. That's our inherent compassion. Because compassion is the, the push away from suffering, the desire to be free from suffering that all sentient beings have. That's interesting, because a lot of times the push against suffering is talked about in terms of compounding the suffering like an yes. ego thing you want to try to avoid you know yes and that's so and that's the reason why that's taught see we're taught to accept the suffering accept the present moment because that allows that is compassion that that teaching is a compassionate teaching it's allowing us to 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 move away from that difficulty right so yeah, here we yeah. So here the idea is to feel into why we're taught that, why we're why acceptance allows us to be more compassionate to ourselves. Right? So when we feel that, when we really feel that that rub of how we're pushing against the present moment, oh that that's compassion. That allows that acceptance to unfold in a, in a more natural way. So then we're not just like, you know, shirking something off because it's difficult and, and I don't want to compound it so I won't think about it. That's okay too. And sometimes that can be skillful, you know, to distract oneself with a movie when they're having a tough time or something like that. That can also be, that, that can be skillful means, but that can also be a way of repressing things. And so here we're invited to feel that that push against the difficulty and recognizing that all beings are pushing against difficulty in that exact same way. And it feels the same in all beings. That push against difficulty that we all do carries that same emotional component uh, for all of us. And so once we realize that we see, oh, that's really a drag, you know, that, that we do that, that, that we can't accept this and when we have to push away from that, when we see that in ourselves, when we feel how painful that can be, we then naturally start to see it in other people and how they're caught in their desire to be free from suffering. That's a really interesting take. I, I like this. Hmm. Yeah, I found it to, to yield some really, really uh, remarkable results. Um, so as you mentioned, the, 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 that burn, that push against suffering compounds the suffering. And that's absolutely right. It's, uh, so in later in the retreat, a couple of weeks into the retreat, one starts working with uh, the phrases, uh, may I accept things just as they are? And then may I experience the world accepting me just as I am? And we pose those as aphorisms and we let them really sit in our heart. And we try to experience what our life would be like if we could accept everything in our experience just the way it was. And then if we could experience the world accepting us just as we are. 
And so that's that there's so much light in that. There's so much healing uh, when when we can really wholeheartedly embrace that type of practice and really move into it. Um, oftentimes when I just say the phrases, people start to get a glimpse of what that might look like. Now, I also want to add here that it's not a passive practice. And that's always the question I get. Well, when, when I move the retreat into, or when I go work with students one-on-one -on -one, and we, we get it to that phrase, may I accept things just as they are? It's always, uh, well, how can I accept things just as they are when there's you know, so much violence in the world or so much systemic racism or whatever the illness is that we're feeling that rub against? How can we accept things just as they are? Right, it's a very natural, normal question. And so then I, I like to, to point out that it is in that acceptance, that's where the healing is. Because if, if we're not accepting, that's the alternative, right? It's either we accept it or we don't, right? And so if we're not accepting things as they are, well, then we're resisting. And that resistance generally carries some sort of reactivity to it, some sort of anger, some sort of depression, sadness, violence, whatever it is. If it's, we're talking on long, you know, talking about maybe the example of systemic racism, it's very difficult to accept, accept, accept systemic racism just as it is, arguably. But if, we, if we're moving forward from a place of non-acceptance, we can't expect anything to change because that move, mo movement forward will always be met with equal resistance. And we see this all the time now uh, throughout America and in other countries around the world. When movements move forward uh, with, you know, laced with violence, laced with anger, laced with reactivity, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And that's how you know we lead to civil war and war around the world. So so yeah. this this idea of accepting things just as they are, so powerful, so healing, and so important uh, in today's world climate. It's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about these teachings, uh, because I I've seen the change in my own life and and I could see that uh, if people could come to a practice like that on mass scale, uh, what a difference it could be. What a difference we could make. Uh, well, I'm just thinking you know. of an individual person feeling individual stress and anxiety. I mean, if, you know, no one wants to be stressed out and anxious. And so um, accepting your own stress and anxiety, you know, there's a counterintuitive nature to it I I think that's hard absolutely absolutely it is challenging and that's why we practice and I think you know you know for me one of the things that really uh, made the practice more accessible was reframing that resistance you know because you know so we feel stress right and then we slip into that mind state, oh, I don't want to feel this way. I hate when I feel this way. You know, this is not good. I can't feel this way. Something has to change. Why is it this way? All of that, um, it's just, you know, adding more and more stress. We're, we're pushing it down, pushing it down. It's amplifying the stress, amplifying the stress more and more. Uh, and so when I started to frame that push as compassion that's what compassion feels like because compassion is the desire to be free from suffering and that push comes from that desire and so reframing that 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 burn i always thought of it as or think of it as a burn when i feel that it's almost this kind of hot piece of coal that i'm hanging on to that i want to to get rid of um and so when I was able to see that as the light of compassion rather than uh, just compounding the problem of stress, um, that really helped for me to, to allow the practice yeah. to become more reachable. Yeah. Yeah. Cause then, 
because otherwise then you're resisting the resistance, you know, yeah. so, so the key is to embrace the resistance by reframing the resistance as compassion. You're not wanting to be stressed. That's compassion because it's wanting to move away from suffering. It just may be, um, you know, compassion may be pushing in the wrong direction, but compassion nonetheless. And so, yeah, that reframing allows you to embrace the resistance, which would then kind of almost create a momentum effect where you would end up embracing the stress at the base of it. Very much so. I like the way you frame that and it has that momentum to it because you get some immediate relief uh, when you move into it in that way. And then, and then you say, well, let me see if I can embrace this whole thing now. Uh, and then it, it really does alleviate it. It doesn't, you know, automatically go away overnight, of course. And if, if it's a long-term situation, you know, it can require uh, diligent work. Um, but it's work worth doing. It's it's funny because, uh, you know, in I think in the world culture nowadays, if we're feeling stressed or we're feeling angry, or we're feeling hurt, we feel that there's something wrong. But the, those are actually uh, natural components of the human experience. <laughs> you know, we all get angry. We all at times feel stress. We all at times feel hurt. And, and so I think, you know, taking away the taboo of all of that, saying, okay, this, you know, this anger belongs here. You know, I have, a, I, I, you know, my anger is justified. Just just because anger is justified doesn't give us the right to go out and to respond to that anger and reactivity and punch somebody out or to cause suffering, you know, but to acknowledge, oh, you know, this is the human experience. Anger is such a mobilizing force and there can be a lot of wisdom behind the anger, but it's just that we've been taught that anger is not good and, and sh we shouldn't feel that that we try to push it away and, and then it just compounds it. It gets stronger and stronger, you know, but by, by turning and, and say, Oh, this anger is here because the situation is not balanced, not right. Let me see if I can do something about it. But at that point, if we can hold the, the anger in compassion, we can move forward out of wisdom rather than out of reactivity. And, and so, I think that that's really um, worth looking at, that taking the taboo off of these emotions that we all feel, that even the Buddha got angry from time to time, and, and to, to, to recognize that that is a human experience and it's totally uh, appropriate. Anytime the human nervous system gets threatened, it will either feel anger or fear, or any combination of those, as a part of our DNA, our, our flight and fight response. So, so to be able to hold those experiences with compassion is so powerful because it gives us the fuel to move forward uh, without reactivity, without hurting somebody. Sure. So that's one of the four immeasurable minds. Right. Some of the others. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, the other side of compassion is loving kindness. And I, I say it's the other side because it's really very related. And you can see as soon as I launch into this, you'll see how loving kindness is also inherent in our being, just like the other, the other three as well, the other two as well. But uh, we can see our own inherent loving kindness when we move towards comfort, when we move towards happiness. Any move that we make towards happiness because loving kindness for ourselves is the desire that we be happy. And so mm -hmm. anytime we move in, a, hopefully in a wholesome way, uh, when we move that in that way, taking care of ourselves, whatever it is, it could be very small, making a cup of coffee in the morning, having a nice breakfast. It could be as simple as scratching an itch or adjusting your posture. But any move, any something, even something so simple and small, that is a move that illustrates our inherent loving kindness. And again, it's inherent in all beings. We all have this inherent quality that we want to be happy and we want to, to move in that direction. 
And so the loving kindness practices are really designed uh, to allow us to, to get in contact with that, with our innate uh, drive towards happiness. And then allowing us to, to recognize that another taboo in our culture, you know, we think, oh, we don't deserve to be happy or, you know, I haven't done anything to deserve this happiness. We, we try to peel that away and allow our innate desire to be happy, to be there, and then to find wholesome ways to encourage that and to grow, to flourish. Wow, yeah, and the, that move towards comfort. Anytime we move towards comfort, it's loving kindness. Like you could even say that about comfort that's probably, you know, um, potentially hazardous even even like an alcoholic drinking is in a sense that's a move towards comfort that's loving kindness maybe it's a little misdirected or it's not working but that's loving kindness right right well and that's where the wisdom part of the the, the practices comes in so when we go and uh into you know meditation practice and we're repeatedly coming back to the present moment, seeing our mind, seeing our condition. Uh, our, habit, our habits become quite noticeable, and our addictive tendencies become really uh, strongly noticeable. It's one of the reasons why uh, mindfulness is so good with addiction recovery, uh, because it really, it really um, highlights those tendencies in a, in a very unforgiving way. Uh, and so if one takes up a practice like this, it's um, it becomes very clear very quickly when we're being self-indulgent uh, because and you know those patterns like use the example of an alcoholic right uh, that that addictive tendency is there to cover up some sort of suffering uh, and so when one is moving in that direction towards loving kindness uh, the idea is to feel it in the body the same way we felt the compassion, to feel the move towards loving kindness and ask yourself, what does this feel like when I move in this direction, when I take care of myself in this way? And if that move is, in fact, a present moment move, not a move based on a reaction towards discomfort or, or a habitual uh, addictive tendency, if it's not any of that, it will have a particular a warmth in the body that you'll feel kind of an opening, there'll be this experiential difference between the wholesome move towards loving kindness and the unwholesome move towards loving kindness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's how uh, in the in the retreats, that's and when I work with people one on one, we start to be able to discern the difference. Because we all have those tendencies, you know, to, to push against something we don't like and to move towards comfort in a way that might not be so skillful uh, and so so there are practices designed to unhook that yeah yeah that's really good mm. it, it the loving kindness um you can always kind of feel into the move you're making through seeing it as loving kindness any move towards comfort you can kind of connect into the body if you see that move as loving kindness and feel the loving kindness through the body and then i guess you could yeah discern like the wholesome or unwholesome as you say moves mm -hmm. towards comfort yeah yeah that's great it really helps to use something like i i advise people to use something like to take something you do every day that's wholesome for you like I, I love the practice of you know making breakfast, and I make a very simple breakfast. I just chop up an apple and put in some yogurt. That's it. But I know that that's going to nourish me, and I'm you know hungry, and that's going to you know keep me going throughout the morning. And and so now when I chop the apple, I really feel into what that movement feels like. Like I know I'm, this is good for me, and I and I enjoy the, the preparing of the, the yogurt and the apple and everything. And I really feel what that feels like, what, what it feels like to care for myself in that way. And I allow that feeling to be there very, very strong in the body. Uh, and then uh, one can compare that to something 
maybe an addiction. You know, you're moving to, towards the next cigarette and going into the body and asking yourself, well, this doesn't feel the same at all. <laughs> you know, because somewhere we know, the body knows, you know, this probably isn't the best thing for me, you know. Uh, and that person still might reach for that cigarette and that's fine. But the, the, there that we're starting to discern the difference between moving forward out of loving kindness and moving forward out of habit. And that's the important thing there. Yeah. And then in the loving kindness uh, program that I offered, uh, we did uh, four weeks of loving kindness for the self and then same pattern, expanding it out to people we love, people we don't know, uh, people we have difficulties with, which can be quite interesting, and then uh, expanding loving kindness to the entire world like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Go ahead. No, I'm 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 curious to hear about joy now. Joy is the deceptively difficult one. <laughs> <laughs> when people hear the word joy, you know, oh sign me up for that. I need more joy in my life, you know. And arguably we probably all need more joy in our life, you know, that would be wonderful. Uh and so it's quite interesting that the practice kind of starts in the same way where we kind of key into our own inherent ability to experience the present moment in its most mundane fashion. That we could just enjoy the experience of breathing and feeling our body and being alive. And, and so, and there's joy there in that just simple existence. There's the experience of joy. And so we start the practice there uh, with the aphorisms, uh, may I enjoy the activities of life itself. And so when we do that, we start to kind of look at our life and we start to you know, look at the things that keep us from experiencing things joyfully. And very quickly, usually what tends to surface is the voice of the inner critic. And so the real, uh, the journey of the joy practice is to find, locate, and uh, assassinate the inner critic, I like to say. <laughs> I like that, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it really can be a profound practice. I mean, it, I, all of them usually, you know, I'd say more often than not, there are some tears shed. Uh, in all of these practices, because it reveals a lot about us, all of them do. But this one is actually, I find to be quite, uh, quite um, a tearjerker <laughs> uh, for many people, because they start to realize how, uh, how they've kept themselves from experiencing so much of their life through the through the lens of joy. Uh, and yeah, so, you could, yeah, go ahead. You, you just you trying to experience joy in the simple moments just gets you thinking, well, okay, I should be doing something else. I haven't done enough with my life. I never blah, 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 yeah. blah. And then you're off to the races, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. And so that the inner critic, as soon as that voice appears, um, we start to start to really kind of do an inner dialogue with the inner critic. You know, and kind of really getting to learn about it, getting to see it, holding it with compassion, recognizing the inner critic is just another uh, push away from discomfort, holding it with loving kindness as a way, because the inner critic is grasping at comfort, moving towards comfort, but in an unhealthy way. And so we use loving kindness and compassion in those practices as well, uh, which is really, really so helpful. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's really lovely because you do, you start to, you know, you start to really take in more of life, uh, through the experience of joy. It's really an opening, a heart opening experience. The sunsets look different. The flowers smell different. Everything has that, uh, joyful quality to it. The fireworks sound different. It's just, uh, it becomes a different uh, life experience after practices of joy. Uh, 
but it is a lot of inner work and it, it's work well worth doing uh, but it, it can be really quite challenging yeah yeah what, what can we can you go through some different examples of inner critics that come up for people well sure i mean it can be you know jealousy is is often one that comes up you know the voice of jealousy how come that person can do things better than i can envy that's another one you know jealousy right. and envy those two are really really often uh, popping up for people also you know not living up to uh parents expectations uh that's sure. a, a a common inner critic or or the expectations of the culture that's one's one is born into particularly uh -huh. for for women you know who choose to stay single for their entire life or things like that you know it really brings us up against how we've kind of uh maybe pushed against cultural norms uh, which is good. I find that to be really good to find your own voice and, and live your own life. But in a way that the inner critic from that push uh, tends to remain with us and keep us from experiencing, as I said, experiencing the joyful uh, aspect of life, which is always with us all the time. There's always this joy that's available. And also the because of the jealousy and the envy uh, we fail to celebrate the joy of others. And that's a big part of the retreat. Once we get into week five through week eight, uh, we start to uh, embrace the joy of others as if it was our own joy. So we see the promotion that our coworker got that we wanted, we see that as our own success, our own joy, uh, or whatever it is, the author that just wrote a book on the same topic that that you did and their book is selling more much more you know experiencing <laughs> you know experiencing their joy as our joy you know yeah and you say so you, your laughter is telling me how you can already see how this could be both challenging and helpful <laughs> yeah, yeah totally i i was yeah. also I was also imagining like for your next marketing campaign on like any retreat you do on joy, you could say, I will teach you how to assassinate your inner critic. <laughs> and, 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 and you're, you're yeah. like making a little, you're making a little like gun sign with your hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ah, nice. Yeah. I might use that. <laughs> I, I, well, I feel like, I feel like if you could actually help people assassinate their inner critic, like and assassinate, like, you know, kind of implies you're killing your inner critic for good. I, I mean, that, that's a huge gift. If you can get that far, I, I would, I would personally just expect maybe my inner critic to get a little softer, but to actually assassinate my inner critic completely i mean i'm intrigued i i want to mm. i want to take this course sign up <laughs> yeah <laughs> um well you've brought up a, a good point actually and, and um it is worth mentioning you know we do these practices uh and the way i'm intending to design it it, it covers a year and so the idea is to spend uh you know two months in retreat and then one month alone uh, so it's three months on loving kindness, three months on compassion, three months on joy, three months on equanimity, like that. And so it would be a year program. And and then the idea is after a year, one can go back, start again on their own. And you're right, because by the time you've done all four and you've gotten through equanimity, the loving, some of the loving kindness uh, has, you know, not as open as it was when you finish the retreat. You know, some of it becomes a little less accessible. It tends to wane a bit, the wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so and so one is encouraged to then go back through again three months. And this is how I practice on my own. I spend three months on loving kindness, three months on compassion, three months on joy, three months on equanimity. And then I cycle through uh year by year by year by year. And I've been doing that for several years now. Um and and you know, each round, each year, it gets a little bit deeper and, and a little more sticks. 
Um, but then I come back around to loving kindness at the end, at the top, and oh, there's a, a, another awakening. Right, I've forgotten about this, or you know, something else peels back. Uh, so yeah, you're right. Things it, when one engages with a practice or with a retreat, things do open up quite deeply, and then. Uh, so you might feel the, the inner critic uh, on life support system. <laughs> and then, and then you know, maybe you take a few months off or however long, and then the inner critic might come back, you know. So then one would be encouraged to go back into those practices again. Uh, but, you know, each time you go back, the inner critic would get a little bit weaker, a little bit weaker, a little bit weaker, taking more and more fuel away from that voice. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it is an important point to know that it's never, none of these practices, any type of meditation practice, it's not like you can meditate for a year, get the wisdom, and then you're done, you retire, you know, because uh, these practices, they, they, they give one a lot of insight, but that wisdom and insight and compassion can start to wane and fade after time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's move on to equanimity. Let's, let's, yeah. Actually, it's funny. Equanimity is one of my, it's actually, if I had to pick one that I really tended towards, I think equanimity is probably my favorite. I really, really like equanimity practice. Uh, it's really um, about embracing the present moment without any preference. So really allowing the present moment to, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I really, I, I love that phrase too, uh, to embrace the moment free from preference. And the, the aphorism we use for that is, um, may I know the present moment free from preference and prejudice. Uh, and it really brings up how we cling to our uh, belief systems and the, the uh, values and truths how we cling to those and how that blocks uh, a lot uh, of the way we receive other people. It blocks how we receive other teachings. It blocks uh, our enjoyment of life and that, uh, you know, if we're locked into preference and we wake up, we've had a, had a picnic planned for that day and we wake up and there's rain falling. You know, it, if somebody, is not holding on to equanimity or practiced in equanimity, that could ruin their entire day, you know? Uh, so you, with a practice of equanimity, you would see the rain falling and say, oh, the rain is falling. You get your umbrella and you, maybe you change your plans and you move about the day, but it doesn't really affect you any longer, see? And so that's the idea behind equanimity. It's really closely tied in with uh, the, the practices of mindfulness, that the whole idea of non-judgment. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, that that phrase, just embrace the present moment without any preferences, it kind of, that's the phrase, right? I got it right. May I know the present moment uh, just as it is, or free from preference and prejudice. Uh, okay, may I know the present moment free from preference. Yeah, because, you know, there's an automatic insistence in this, you know, there's kind of an insistence or an or even like an argument like <laughs> this, this is not the way it should be, you yeah. know, it should be a little more like this. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I mean, how much of our life is spent in that tug of war, how much energy is spent in how things how things aren't the way we think they should be. And again, here we can see, we, we tend to, to see a little bit of compassion arising because that, that alone, that insight shows us how we do that push, right? So these, these four practices are very intimately connected. And so when one does a practice of equanimity, oftentimes compassion might arise or joy or loving kindness, uh, those might show up as well. So equanimity gives us the the, the non-judgmental base needed uh, to offer loving kindness to ourselves, or to loving kindness to people we don't like, or to offer compassion uh, to ourselves or to the entire world and things like that. 
So it gives us that, that freedom from our conditional reactivity that's, uh, that we've been you know, born into or the, uh, the, um, the worldview that we're born into. It slowly starts to tease us away from the unconscious beliefs about how the world ought to look or how the world should be and allows us to see things more clearly as they are. Yeah. Well, you know, I wanted to mention to you that your voice, and maybe it's partly influenced by me, I'm not sure, but to me, it seems like your voice in this recording of this podcast is actually fuller and deeper and maybe a little more like lower in your body than previous podcasts. Hmm. In a, in, a, in a good in yeah. a good way i i think like previous podcast maybe you were more in the head or the neck and now i'm really mm. feeling a kind of depth a kind of visceral like coming from the gut or coming from the heart you know interesting it's funny i just before we met i i uh, offered a two-hour uh, loving kindness program for the retreat participants actually it was an hour and a half 90 minutes uh, program for you. Know, I just finished a retreat last month, but I, I wanted to bring them all back together uh, for a reunion uh, over Zoom. Uh, so maybe you're hearing some of the remnants of the, the loving kindness offerings that I just gave uh, in my belly. <laughs> sure, sure. And they were all able to make it. I, I would just think with these online retreats, it's hard to get a time where everybody feels comfortable about it. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Clint, <laughs> because uh, one of the great benefits of Zoom is that they're, they're, they can be recorded. And so you're right. I've had people last retreat. I had three people sign up who couldn't make any of the sessions live. Uh, so they did them all on recording and I, and I, I just send them links uh, to the recording. Uh, so people are able to do the retreat on their own time and then email me uh, questions that they want to have answered in the question and answer sessions. Uh, and okay. so, and I also, I offer um, two one-on-one -on -one sessions per retreat per part, for, for each participant. So especially for people who are doing them in that way through correspondence who can't make the live sessions, uh, the one-on-one -on -one sessions become very key. Uh, for their retreat experience so that they can really touch in with me and uh, we can make sure things are unfolding in a healthy way. Yeah, it's really important. So, so the people, so the people that didn't make any of the live sessions and saw it on recorded, they did get you live one-on-one -on -one for two sessions? They did. Yeah. We, we, we through email line up a time that's, that's more appropriate for both of us. Uh, and cool. then we just meet that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this this next uh, retreat, I might offer a second module at the same time through the same dates, uh, but at a different time of day for people in Europe, if I get enough people signing up. But but I'll have to see about that. And you're and you're going to be doing some more Facebook Live sessions on the Contemplative Light page. Hopefully. I am. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Thank you for 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 inviting me to do that. And I'm I. Uh, I am. I'm going to be doing those at the same time as the retreat is slated for. Uh, uh, um, I guess in America, it's Sunday evening and Thursday evenings at 9 p.m. East Coast time. Uh, that's Monday morning and Friday morning here in Asia, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, so, yeah, if you're listening and, and you want to catch me doing a Facebook Live, all of the Facebook Live uh, sessions uh, for the next month until the retreat are focused on compassion. And I'll be talking about the benefits of cultivating compassion uh, for ourselves and for others. And, and, and you know, talking not too detailed about the practices that we'll be doing. I uh, won't be doing too much guided meditation on those Facebook Live sessions, but really just talking, telling stories, getting people inspired for the, for the retreat, hopefully, and uh, encouraging people to, to join the, the retreat program. Cool. And that's, that's going to be Sunday and Thursday nights on the Contemplative Light Facebook page, correct? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So Excellent. please join. Yeah. Um, and for all y'all listening that don't, haven't 
found us on Facebook, you can pretty much easily just type in Contemplative Light and we'll come up on Facebook. We have a pretty active Facebook following, um, so that'll be good. And um, Chris, it's just always such a joy to talk with you. Thanks for coming on tonight. Well, thanks for having me, Clint. It's really always a pleasure to connect with you as well. And um, yeah, I hope to see you on, on one of the programs and uh, hope we get to talk again really soon. Yeah, totally. All righty. Take care. You too.